The following is a special edition of Rick Flynn Presents. Hey everybody, Jim O'Brock here. My buddy Rick Flynn called me and reminded me of all the fun that I used to have that I may have forgotten about, but he remembered, and y'all listen in. You'll have fun. You're listening to Rick Flynn. With a shout out from London Town, it's Rick Flynn Presents... Now, ladies and gentlemen, your MC for the affair, Rick Flynn. Hello, everyone. Welcome on in. Boy, what a great show we're going to have today. And you have my word on that one. Here is the man that got us rolling, that got us started. Started with episode number one of Rick Flynn Presents Confessions of a Showbiz Kid. We had no guests. We had nothing lined up. And people kept saying, Rick, do a podcast. Why don't you do a podcast? With your background, you can do a podcast. Don't overthink it. Just do it. I said, well, I don't know what a podcast is. But after they trained me and taught me what it is, I said, well, I've already been doing this. I've been doing this for years. This is nothing different other than the fact that people can listen at their leisure seven days a week, 24 hours a day on their phone, on their computer. And we went on to get a very popular worldwide podcast going. I absolutely love this job. And this man is one of the reasons why. Ladies and gentlemen, from Newport, Ritchie, Florida, the star of a band called Boot, who you're going to hear all about. Let's listen to their hit record. Hey, little girl, this is Boot, everybody. Take a listen. Hit it, boys.
Do you want to know how you go from zero to hero? I'll tell you how that is. Here's one way of doing it. You go get yourself not one, not two, but three of your high school friends and you start a rock band in your mom's garage and you practice and you practice and pretty soon you're good enough to go out and get local gigs. The first one will pay you about, oh, $20 that you have to split four ways and then you'll be good enough eventually to play around town locally and then you'll be good enough to play not only in Newport, Ritchie, Florida, but around the entire state of Florida and you will have what later will become national rock bands warming you up as those young bands are on their way to the same success level that you are. In fact, you're the star. They're coming up, so they're going to warm you up along the way. You're going to gain more popularity, and instead of the state of Florida only, you're going to break out nationwide. You're going to play for Dick Clark, who produced and hosted American Bandstand, the television show, and other important dates. You're going to travel the country. You're going to gain a reputation. You're going to have groupies. You're going to have everything that a rock and roll band has, and you're going to do that for 12 years with the same four guys, all of you who are high school buddies. And what a tale to tell. And here to tell it is a man who knows it like the back of his hand. I can assure you of that because it's none other than rock star drummer from Boot on Agape Records. Here he is, Jim O'Brock. Get on in here, Jim. It's a delight to hear you again. On the radio, on the stage, on my memory, boot was an acronym, they called it, for blues of our time. However, I am going to disagree. Even though they did play warming up B.B. King, who actually was a fan of the band. He liked the band. The late B.B. King, one of the masters of the blues, thought Boot was excellent, and he even told you, Jimmy O'Brock, that this band, if you keep this band together, you're gonna make it. Is that not what B.B. King said? And welcome on in here, Jim O'Brock, drummer for Boot. Good to talk to you, Rick. I appreciate you calling me, and and uh, I'm looking forward to, you know, just kind of walking down memory lane one more time. Boy, isn't that right? We did it before, and you know, you know what? Let me say this before we get rolling. I was recommended in my later life to do something because I wanted to come back to work. And they told me, Rick, you ought to do a podcast with your radio, with your TV background. Do a darn podcast. Jimmy, I didn't know what a podcast well, was. I, was I had no say, idea. You know, your, first, your first question was, okay, what's that? Yes, <laughs> I had no idea, so I had to go out. I've got some experts out there that listen to them. People referred me. Well, you got to talk to her because her whole life is about podcasting and she listens to three, four, five of them. So I understood from having lessons that basically what it is, it's a radio show, but it allows the listener to listen to it on their computer 24 hours and seven at their schedule. And if you can do radio well, 
you can do a podcast. Will you go along with that? Yes. And uh, my son listens to several podcasts while he's driving to work. Oh, yes. So he, yeah. Yeah, they're popular in the car. Yeah. Yeah, very much so. So at any rate, I called you. The reason I bring all this up in the first place, I said, well, if I'm going to do this podcast, I got to get started. And Lord, who did I call? Episode number one. O-N-E, the first show for Rick Flynn Presents was Jim O'Brock from the band Boot. Episode one, we now have, I believe it's 300. No, I'm sorry. What is it? It's 200 and uh, we celebrated our first 100 shows. Our 100th show was with the drummer for the Electric Light Orchestra, Bev Bevan. He came on. That was show 100. I think right now we have already produced 134 or 136, and we have between two and three months worth of guests lined up in advance waiting to come on. Aren't you running out of vocabulary yet? No, 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 (laughs) no, 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 no. I wanted to get started with Boot because it corresponded with my career, not only on the radio, but it corresponded with my being a writer and my newspaper column, which is where I met you after having heard you play and Boot at that time was not a hot band. I would say you were basically on fire at that time. I told you that that your band was the mistake that the record company made they could have made millions off of your band you were that good it's that could have that was a possibility you know we there were a lot as you look back you know hindsight is 100 is uh, 2020 and uh you know you look at the things that happened it was a learning just like your podcast you started out with us we started out with star day king and uh we didn't know enough about it to advise them i mean they were already uh, an existing record company and had been for a long time and we figured okay let's just listen to these guys they know what they're doing well they did know what they were doing in country <laughs> Mm-hmm. <laughs> but they they weren't real good, real adept at promoting a rock band. Just to give you an example, if I may, one of their promotions was they would send out to radio stations trying to get them to play our record. They would send one Acme boot. There was the Acme Boot Company in Nashville, and they, they would send out one boot. And they tell the uh, the station manager or whomever the program director tell them, okay, if you play this record, I'll send you the other boot. <laughs> All right. And these were what? Cowboy boots or combat yes, boots or what they were, were they? Ac- acne boots. Those are cowboy boots. That's what I thought. <laughs> so, so, you know, it was it was kind of, if you'll pardon the expression, they kind of got off on the wrong foot. <laughs> yes. Isn't that the truth? Now, straighten me out here because yes. Cincinnati had King Records, which was on a street called Brewster Avenue in a section of Cincinnati called Evans. That was home of King Records, and that was where James Brown has been given—he was 
given his start when the owner of that company, King Records, Sid Nathan, hired him. Yeah. And then now, we- after King, D- James did go on to uh, a Polygram and Polydor. Now, somewhere right. in there after he left King Records, when he went to Polygram, did he switch and start recording his material at Starday King in Nashville? You know, that's where, whenever we went to record there, we would see James Brown's gold records on the wall. And so I, you know, I didn't ask any specific questions, but I just assumed that he did the majority of his recording there. Now, we, we didn't see the Cincinnati studio, but two of their producers came to see us at Reflections, and that's where we got the record deal offered. Right. Uh, Reflections and, was a nightclub. Tell them right, yeah, about yeah. that nightclub. It was on the campus, right off the campus of the University of Cincinnati. Tell them about that. Uh, oh, fabulous club. How many yeah. people would come in there to see you? There'd be 1,500 to 2,000, I guess. 2,000. Sure Easily. Two thousand. Okay. Well, yeah, 2,000. And it was a, a great spot, a multi-level. They had a sunken dance floor and the and then nice stage. And then our, and this is kind of back when remote boards so the roadies could hear the sound. We ran a snake up to the audience area where the roadies could hear what we were doing and they could actually tweak our our sound to uh to the audience's perception but uh, it was it was a great place uh they served food and booze and and uh, uh it was kind of a teen club but they still I think they still had alcohol. No, oh, they did. Oh, yes, they yeah. did. Oh, well, back then now, you if you were 18, you could drink what they called 3-2 beer. Right, yeah. Near beer or whatever. Right, correct. Yeah, now you can't do that anymore. There, there's no yeah. such thing as 3-2 beer anymore. And some yeah. genius said, they said, well, if we lower the from 6% alcohol of real beer, if we lower that to 3-2, <laughs> the children will not be getting is drunk no not at all no they just drink four of them right they would drink twice as much (laughs) and that would turn three two into seven instead of six (laughs) and but no they wouldn't get near as drunk boy somebody Uh, was a mathematics a mathematics genius yeah oh i'm telling you oh now listen they're saying here i'm reading from the historical society in tampa Bay Music, Tampa, Florida. The band Boot, uh, what are they saying? The band in 1963 three yes. formed in listen to this port ritchie florida no, new newport Ritchie. that's what i'm saying it's, that's a misprint that oh, should yeah, be absolutely. newport ritchie well and the two cities are right next to each other there and, you go and, so and they, they should really say the band formed in newport ritchie yeah but you know they spelled our names wrong a lot too so you know there's that right and it says here in 1963 the band formed in it's says Port Ritchie, but I know and you know it was New Port Ritchie, which was right right. next door to Port Ritchie, Florida, and it says the band formed as the Kingsmen. Yes. Now, the Kingsmen, we all know they did (laughs) a 
a Louie Louie. Whoa, right. babe. Away oh, down low. Da, 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 now, da, da, it was, it was that, after after uh, we formed that, uh, I mean, we'd been you know just practicing in my garage for a couple of months, and uh, we were the, the, the true garage band. And, uh, and then Louie Louie was released, and we thought, oh, crap. So then we had to come up with a new name. Right. So within the first three months, we changed our name to The Illusions. Right. And for the first three months only. Well, no, no. Uh, after, after after the months, Kingsman, we, yes, we changed from the Kingsman to the Illusion. Yes, and we we started playing around the Tampa Bay area, and we were getting our name out there, and people would ask for us every once in a while. And and I, then think about two or three years after that, we our music didn't, uh, as far as we were concerned, didn't really represent illusions. The word illusion it seemed kind of dated. So at that point, everybody's got hair down to their waist almost, and uh, so we changed our name to the split ends <laughs> yes 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 now, and, and that that was your name for how long was that over a year for about four years the band was together for 12 years okay now so, it started the band started in 63 yes so it ended in 74 76 75 yes. 75 yeah all right it started as the kingsman but when right. louis louis the song louis louis came out that was by the Kingsman. So you right. couldn't use that anymore. That was finished. Well, we figured it'd be a conflict. So. Oh, I gr- well, I'm telling you, there was a band up here in this area. They were uh. called the Crickets. Oh, geez. <laughs> but they spelled it with a K, not the yeah. C. And they still had to change it. Yeah, that's too close. You're that's right. too close to Buddy Holly and the Crickets. Right. So right. they had to change. So at any rate, uh, the Kingsman, you began as you lasted a few months till Louie Louie came out. That was and the end actually, of that. Go ahead. I don't think we played anywhere. I think our first gig was at a baby clothes manufacturing company in Tarpon Springs, which was six miles south of Newport Ritchie. We played there for $24 for all four of us for their Christmas party. Oh. And I think we played as the Kingsman for that. Oh my. That's, that's the only professional gig we played as the Kingsman. So therefore, you were literally playing in their clothing warehouse? Yes. <laughs> they oh, had their Christmas party there. Lord uh, almighty. Was, and yeah, then I'll tell you some experiences. Oh, that is incredible. And so <laughs> now you change your name to the illusions, but that didn't last but a few months. No, uh, no. Uh, or no. Year. How it lasts about a year? No, no, more than that. Uh four or five years. We actually were pretty well known as the illusions. We were expanding our sphere of influence. Like we would right. play, of course we would call it going on tour to Winter Haven, which was like 50 miles away. Okay. <laughs> right. And, and, uh, and where is this? They say, I'm hearing people that have written in uh, telling me that you used to play in a place I know nothing about, but it was the Port Richie, Newport Richie uh, Activity Center. Recreation, or rec- Center. Recreation Center. Yeah. What yeah. was that about? Well, it was just a local gig and, uh, you know, we played a lot a lot of those places like Tarpon Springs had a recreation center, Dade City, which is about 35 miles away, had one, Orlando Teen Center. Jeez, I got to think uh, all the, there's the Beehive in Fort Myers, Tarpon Springs, you know, all those. We played, uh, that was kind of like the teen circuit. So were you poolside outdoors or what? Oh, no, no. These are 
the the teen centers were like just kind of like community halls, just the city sponsored recreation center. And uh, no was pool. was there a gymnasium? Where did you physically yeah, play? Yeah, we're playing in. Yeah, we're playing inside a gymnasium. That's right. They would they would put a bunch of tables together to make us make a stage, and um, that that's what we played on. You played on a bunch of tables that they put <laughs> next to each other to make a stage. Yeah, we were a lot lighter then. <laughs> <laughs> oh, I'm telling you. So. Then that was the illusions. And then after that, when the hair started to grow longer, it became the band became the split ends. And I know that a lot of people knew boot before when they were the the split ends. That's right. And that was really where our where, where we really became known around Florida was as the split ends. Now, when we changed to boot, we started playing out of Florida, like Ohio, Indiana. Uh, we did a Dick Clark tour that went from West Virginia through Ohio uh, and South Carolina, Kentucky. Anyway, it was about a about a two week tour every night. But I, I got a funny story about the name change, and I don't remember the exact year we we changed from Illusions to Split Ends. But we were playing the Teen Circuit. There was a club uh, near Lake Wales or Lake City somewhere. No, Lake Wales. This is Florida. Uh, in Florida, and so we played there probably every four months. And so we we'd. Uh, 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 played there as the illusions. And then four months later, we had changed our name in the meantime and played as the split ends. And they always, in the promos, they would say uh, the split ends, formerly the illusion. And so, but people don't read all that. So we're playing there and I hear these kids talking and they said, who are these guys? I thought the illusions were going to be here. The illusions are a hundred times better than these guys. <laughs> <laughs> and, and it was the identical same lineup. It was the same, same lineup. people, just a different name and yeah. that that is another thing about boot boot was a four-piece band it was drums right. it was lead guitar with bruce knox it yep. was rhythm guitar with mike mitch and right. it was bass with danny eliason a four-piece right. band uh-huh. now you also when you traveled had a couple road men but none of them contribute musically they were your roadies if you will yes, right but they were Excellent. Boots, his name was Bruce DeLuey. And the reason why we ch- we gave him the nickname Boot was, and that was why we were the split end. Uh, uh-huh. so, it was, it was, <laughs> so it's kind of coincidental that we actually changed the band's name to Boots, but it wasn't because our roadie was named Boots. Anyway, so so uh, Boots was with us probably eight years. And he, he, knew our, he knew everything we did backwards and forwards. Yeah. And the other roadie was named Flatbush. Flatbush. Right. How long was he? there he he was there a lesser time he he was with us long enough that boots and flatbush were the two most remembered uh, we've had others like glenn swinson and a few of those others but but boots and flatbush were the ones that were with us geez all the way to the end so that was they were with us from midway through the split ends and then then as boots so your roadies your two roadies their life if you will and their career and the money they made if you will was all based upon boot just like yeah. it was for the four musicians that's right now yeah, they didn't they didn't make a lot but we did you know they they got a certain amount every day every gig and uh free room free food yeah uh so you know did they, they drive a truck and they would they would drive the truck yeah and uh. set up the stuff you know for years i didn't have to touch my drums and uh, 
when the band broke up and I started playing with a nightclub band, I had to relearn how to set my drums up. (laughs) (laughs) One day you came in to Reflections. I'll never forget this. And by the way, as you mentioned, this Reflections was a large club. It held easily. It held 2,000 and you would fill it up. We all know it. Cincinnati knows it. Cincinnati knows who Boot is to this very day. You will live on in infamy as being (laughs) one of the bands. You, You not only traveled out of Newport, Richie, you you made all the stops in Florida, which probably gave you agency representation, which then booked you nationwide. Am I on the right track here? Yes. And what we would do, uh, I actually was the leader of the band and and I coordinated the gigs. So I, I had a few gigs that I booked. In fact, you know, I, I would I was the guy that when we were in a motel somewhere, everybody else is out at the pool with the girls. I'm in the room on the phone finding the next gig. <laughs> right. Now, keep in mind, this is before cell phones. You had oh, to have absolutely. a hardwired telephone in your room and you had to pay long distance for every yep. call you made, right? Yep. Now, one nice thing was when we were recording in Nashville, they had what's called a Watts line. And so it didn't cost us anything. And they paid a, a lump sum for that, for the minutes on the Watts line. I didn't really know how that worked. But man, when we ever, when we went in the studio, I'd camp out on that Watts line and the salespeople with Starday would come complained that they couldn't couldn't call their clients. (laughs) <laughs> oh, Watts was a was a toll-free line. Yeah, I know. Yes. Yeah. Oh, yes, sir. Toll it free was. For, the, for the user, but yeah. You know, right. The company got, it's really a discounted. They, whoever rate. owned that Star Day King Records, they paid for it. Well, and that's that's the deal. In fact, I remember the president of the company, he, he didn't know who did it, but he, he was talking about his $6,000 Watts bill. <laughs> and I, felt, I felt real guilty right about that time. Oh. Well, isn't that the truth? Isn't that the truth? All yeah. right. So somewhere along the line, after the split ends name, which you held for, was, is it what, four years? How many years oh, there? I got to think. And, you know, I, I never really thought Was of it above line. three? Oh, yeah. Way more than three. Probably four or five. Okay. How did the acronym BOOT B-O-O-T come to be when, to be honest with you, Jim, I'm telling you the way it is. I know the way it is. I was there. Boot was not a blues band. I know you warmed up B.B. King, but when you warmed up B.B. King, you did your same rock and roll shtick that you did when you warmed up uh, Jefferson Airplane and Canned Heat and everybody else. Steppenwolf. And Mountain. Oh, Mountain with uh, Leslie West. (laughs) Yeah. Mississippi Queen. Yep. Right. So. How did well, you get? Where did Boot come from? Because you weren't a blues band, Jimmy. No, but uh, but a lot of the uh, uh, people would would say, "Well, you guys, you guys really have a blues in uh, you know, a, a blues in uh, indication influence in- influence." Yeah, and uh, and so I guess that kind of stuck with us, and and that's that's where that came from. Right, they felt like we had a bluesy sound, and nobody called you blues of our time. Everybody just said that's Boot. <laughs> 
playing tonight. Yeah, yeah, and that's and that's what we wanted. We just wanted it as an acronym. Right. And when they spelled boot on the record and every place where you played, it was not B period, O period, O period, T period. They just wrote out boot. Yeah, uh, some places put the periods in, but usually it was just boot. Right. Are you outdoors down to Dock of O'Brock? I am I'm hearing Dock. Yes, we'll probably hear a horn, uh, a train horn here pretty soon. Right. And what's that railroad to pass us through there again kansas city southern kansas city southern that's right yeah they haven't they haven't had any serious derailments here yet <laughs> no i'm telling you oh that's sad yeah that really I, I read about that that uh now are you are you upwind or downwind of that no we're nowhere near that uh-uh okay no, well, for heaven's sake, that was not a good thing. But yeah, the Kansas City Southern, you've got your mansion down there in Florida now. Uh, what am I hearing? Is the wind blowing? Yeah, yeah, that's where you're hearing a flag. I've got my American flag up there, and the wind's at my back. So I tell you what, I'll go down. Uh, I'm sitting up on the on the top deck. I'll go down on the other one, so uh, I'll be out of the wind. Okay, because I know that can be that can when, be irritating. Yeah, when that wind blows, it's uh, blowing blowing uh it's it's exceeding your your uh your voice tone well let me go inside the little room here we got a little pool house or dock house yeah it's a it's a, a little cedar lined room and it's ah. air conditioned and heated so we can get out of the out of the uh, uh the cold or the heat whichever and i i'll sneak down here and take a nap without telling my wife and, uh... <laughs> all right all right <laughs> now listen we opened up the show today with what was probably and i don't think probably i'd say definitely uh i don't believe i'm out of order in the least to say that the song hey little girl was the quote commercial hit if you will the 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 best known song that boot released to the public would that be right possibly so but we got a lot of requests for destruction road too right and, and it was yeah that was a good song yeah that was a psychedelic era Jimi hendrix slash all those other psychedelic bands steppenwolf you were you came up in the psychedelic area and yeah. destruction road was it was a tribute to that style of jefferson airplane ish psychedelic music would that be right yeah. yes and it was real simple and it was really kind of a commentary on racism you know mother's cry my son's been shot that, yes. that was part of the lyric yes and uh, so you know it was kind of a kind of a comment on uh, uh how unfair people were to a certain segment of the population right and by the way let's not forget that neil young did his four dead in ohio yes right can't R- state Ken State University, home of Joe Walsh and the yeah. James Gang. Right. Yeah, absolutely. So, therefore, you did get a whole lot of people listening to Destruction Road. The song Destruction Road, if anybody wishes to hear it, they can do so. Somebody has put it up on YouTube. Am yeah. I right? Yes. And and uh, as I mentioned to you a little bit earlier, my nephew in Europe... Um, I went over there for my other son's wedding and he, my nephew, uh, talked to me and he said, Hey, 
would you mind re-recording this, uh, Destruction Road with me in the studio in Estonia? I said, absolutely. So we recorded it and the project, and I think it's always, I think it's also on Spotify and maybe YouTube. Also, I, I just have copies on my computer, so I don't know what you know genre you can find them on. But um, anyway, we did that. And the name of the project was Reboot. Okay, Reboot. All right, but, but once again, now let me say on the Reboot, we're not dealing other than with yourself we weren't That's dealing right. it was not the original boot band no nah, it was just I'm, i was the only one from the original band on it all right there we go now and spotify puts this show out that you're on right now so i want to oh, thank good. them for that absolutely they have put out it'll soon be a couple hundred episodes when the average podcast fails between episode seven and that's when it usually fails around episode seven very few get past episode 20 and a friend of mine said rick you know why that is i said no why is that they said well the reason they they fail around episode seven that's usually when most people are running out of friends Uh, and and ideas too i'll bet (laughs) yeah yeah. oh yeah and what am i doing i'm i'm three months in you know we're lined up with people ready to go you know and we're still your friends oh well that's that's unusual that's good (laughs) well i'll accept that i'll accept that but i want to tell you that when you got out of the florida scene it was because agents managers started to see what jim obrock and the boot band was doing and you all were showman extraordinaire and i started to say earlier when i talked about you coming into reflections one day i was there and i look up on the stage and you have this darn acrylic see-through drum kit with the double bass drums enlarged yeah and the tom-toms up on a stand both of them in between there and then the floor toms on the floor on the floor and it was black smoke acrylic that literally you could see right through and I said, I've never seen a drum set like this in my life. I had seen the clear ones. I had seen ones various colors. I had never seen one like that. You said, oh, Rick, well, I made them myself. I hired a company to to do my shells, an acrylic plastic company. They did right. the shells, and I made the drums myself. Now, I how drilled, back— drilled all the holes and put the hardware in. That is—you. where did you get the idea to make your own— drum set in 1960-something. Well, at that time, miking of drums and things like that in big venues, we were playing in front of, uh, geez, you know, upwards of three to 8,000 people, and and, and they weren't really adept at uh, hiring a sound company. In fact, there probably weren't that many sound companies available. It wasn't really a thing yet. So we were creating our own sound, and I needed big drums to project, I felt. And so I just made bigger drums, and, and I played them. And and you still have those drums to this day? They're up. Yes, they're in my shop. I've got about uh, see, I've got about four sets of drums now. I've got uh, I play in church, so I've got one set of drums there. I have a set in my shop to practice on, and then I have another set in my trailer for gigging. Okay, I got it. Now th- it is. Um... It should be noted that when the Beatles came over from England in 1966, 
1964, they appeared on the Ed Sullivan Show. We all know that. That's a television right. program where their life changed infinitely after they Absolutely. appeared on there. You know that. It was called yes. Beatlemania. Right. And then they played the infamous concert at Shea Stadium. Yeah. In New York. Shea and you Stadium. You hear anything. Right. <laughs> I bring that up, Jim, because yeah. the PA system that the Beatles sang through in Shea Stadium when they played on that tour after they just came over, that was the same house PA that the public address announcer that called the New York Yankees baseball game would play it was those horns and everything uh, up in the ceiling I, I figured they probably had a mic to go through that now I, I think a lot of it was just like we played where we had our own speakers for the pa on the stage with us yeah. and that was it yeah and uh, somehow they rigged up what they had more than likely probably columns or something like you right. could get at a music store maybe four twelves in, in in each column right and, right. and then they, they somehow came out of a little PAM and then put it into the house so that the girls, well, they attempted to get everybody to hear, but with the <laughs> screaming and everything, you really couldn't hear anything. Yeah. And, and sub, subwoofers weren't a thing yet either. No. Oh, that's true. That is yeah. so true. And Lord almighty, it was the fact that, and we made a big deal of this the last time you were on episode one of this show. I wanted people to know then, and I want people to know now. People say, well, Rick, what is so significant about boot when all I can say to somebody that had not ever seen you or heard of you is, let me just tell them the truth, Jimmy, and say that boot became so well known that there was an up-and-coming band out of Macon, Georgia. They were just getting started. I know people that were down there in Georgia, male and female. I used to yeah. have girls come and hear me play and say, oh, Greg Allman. I used to go down when I lived in Georgia, she told me, and, and they would play at the these little picnic shelters slash band shelters like what the symphony plays in in the park. Yeah. And they'd go down there and play for free, the Allman Brothers you, Band. You do what you can to get exposed. Exactly. And when Boot was up there as a star booking band, you had the Allman Brothers Band, who was only known by the local audience they were able to make down in, in Macon, Georgia. And then when they right. moved to Florida, they expanded that, of course. But the Allman Brothers and an unknown act out of Jacksonville, Florida, not <laughs> Newport Ritchie, Jacksonville, named Leonard Skinner. Both of yeah. them, the Allman Brothers and Skinner, would warm up boot on jobs. True or false? That's true, but you, you kind of got the, got the uh, traveling in reverse. Here's the way it worked in in Florida, we had Leonard Skinner in Jacksonville, and we had heard about him, but we hadn't seen him until we went. We were playing in Atlanta, Georgia, and we were pretty, pretty, uh, pretty well known there, pretty well accepted. And so there was one night in a club called Hot Atlanta that Skinner opened for us. We were we were the stars.
Jaguars, they were the opening act. And, uh, you know, it wasn't too long after that that the roles reversed. <laughs> but anyway, and then the Almond Brothers were from Daytona. So we got Skinner from Jacksonville, Almonds from Daytona, and we were on the other side of the state from Tampa, St. Pete, Newport, Richie. And so we were all kind of doing the circuit in Florida, and we played a, a gig in Gainesville. Now, just as an aside here, a, a, a band that came out of Gainesville was called Mud Crutch with Tom Petty. That's Tom Petty. and Yeah, right. Yeah. That was the forerunner of Tom Petty and the Heartbreak. That's right. So we were playing frat houses. Uh, Tom Petty would be playing across the way. The Almonds would be playing across the way. And so we're all playing at University of Florida. And, uh, you know, various times we would all be there at one time. So Lipham Music Company, I don't even know if they're still there in Gainesville, decided to sponsor a Southeast music contest. Uh, uh, I think that's the name of it, Southeast Pop Music Contest. And so they asked us if we wanted to compete. They had the Almond Brothers. They had another band called um, uh, uh, Noah's Ark, which became, I got to think, White Witch. Bobby Caldwell is the drummer, Captain Beyond. Oh, yes, uh, so, yes, Captain Beyond. Yeah, yeah, Bobby, phenomenal drummer. But anyway, so we played uh, against the Almond Brothers. Bobby Caldwell won Best Drummer, and I think I got second. We won first place as a band beating the Almond Brothers, but only because they had just replaced, released their first album. They liked to jam a lot. Oh, yes. We were still, we they were always still have. They always did. Yes. And we were playing songs. And I think jamming gets old after a while. And that, that may be, you know, why we won instead of them. Right. So there you have it, ladies and gentlemen. The Almond Brothers warming up boot. Leonard <laughs> Skinner warming up boot. Now, yeah. you also played with Grace Slick and the Jefferson Airplane. How did they come into your life? And when did you work with them? We were uh, we would play a lot in Tampa at um, uh, Curtis Hickson Hall. That was uh, that was a great venue. It would hold about three or four thousand people. Jesus and were you filling it there. up? Were you filling it? Well, I, I mean, we were opening for the other. We were the local band opening for them. And uh, so typically, you know, if if, if Yes was there, or um, uh, we played with Jethro Tull Mountain, yes, uh, yes. Jefferson Airplane, and so they were actually the big attraction. Although we had a lot of fans too, and we we gained a lot of fans from from those gigs and we got some my wife is just now digging up some of my old memorabilia and putting it into a book and uh, god bless her <laughs> and because uh, she wasn't around then she just has heard the stories and now she's seeing a lot of the reviews and the pictures and things like so she's putting it all in order and asking me questions and it's kind of a nice trip down memory lane for me Ab- but, uh, we, absolutely so jefferson airplane w- uh, you warmed them up you warmed up grace slick and yes. this is back when she was doing uh, uh, the uh, White Rabbit uh, song and and right. right. It, and that was at, uh, what, what was that clubbing in called? It was called, well, Curtis Hickson Hall. It was like a, uh, a a convention center in Tampa, but they would put on shows like this. It was a it was a large auditorium for that time, you know, three or four or 5,000 people. Right. And, uh, it was nicely laid out. Uh, so, you know, everybody could hear and see. All righty. Now, what about, well, I'm going up the country. Say what you oh, want to yeah. say. That yeah. was a group called, I think the singer's name was, was uh what was it big bear jeez i don't know yeah but that, 
I forget his name, but he passed away. But it was Canned Heat. The band was yeah. Canned Heat. What were you doing? Were you warming them up too? Or yes, w- yeah. Where was this and in Florida? It was at Curtis Dixon Hall. Oh, and, okay. And the funny thing is that the after after we played, the drummer came up to me and he said, uh, and well, after the whole show, you know, that we played, they played, and then we were you know packing up and stuff and talking, and he said, you know, the drummer, uh, he was uh, Hispanic. The drummer come up and saved the show. because that was when everybody finished with a drum solo oh yes 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 now you played with a speaking of the drum solo didn't you play i'm trying to remember in a gotta da vida baby Uh, did you play you didn't play with them that was called what were they called the iron butterfly Iron butterfly we we played with them a couple of times once in tampa and then once in miami i mean yeah yeah miami at the highlight so you did play with it what you warmed them up or you traveled with them or what yeah we warmed we warmed them up and we played out and right about that time we did a dick clark show in california and while we were out there we played the valley teen center with steppenwolf stepping born to be wild yeah and magic carpet ride yeah they were just they were just getting out of the california scene and going national at that point boy isn't that the truth wow Uh, this is before laptop computers were invented nobody including the college students had them at their home this was before cell phones this was before everything all this digital that they have today and back then at that time if you had a pa amplifier for your pa system and that thing was 33 zero 30 watts yeah oh oh you were shining you were you were doing (laughs) real well a little duquesne or a little bogan (laughs) and that thing was 30 watts you were downtown you you were strutting your stuff and now i mentioned for a band on tour it was before gps too (laughs) oh absolutely absolutely it was i'm telling you ladies and gentlemen this is what rock and roll is about it was about four young men from newport ritchie florida that became friends and how many personnel changes in 11 years did you have with the boot band zero none none we stayed the same four guys well actually the first month we uh you know just playing in my garage we had a guy uh roland hall who played a lap steel and uh and then we got a trumpet player but that was only just a few weeks that was about it and then we got got mike mitch and bruce knox and then that was our our 12-year group all right now bruce knox has gone on to be with the lord he was called home yeah he's the only one right now of the band who is not with us but i bring him up because bruce knox was your lead guitar player how how would you equate bruce knox honestly with the average guitar player of the average band including a band like uh van halen somebody that had an outstanding guitarist a a lot of bands like bad company all these bands shine on that guitar ac dc acts like this without a good guitarist you ain't got nothing how do you think bruce knox with boot held his own against everybody else what is your honest to god opinion on that my honest opinion is all of those people have a, a style that when when you hear them playing you say oh 
oh, that's this guy or that's this guy. So Bruce had his own style. He was ahead of his time, I felt, because uh, some of his licks were fast and he would throw in, he could do chords. Like, you know, when we played with B.B. King, he told us, he said, listen, I need you to play chords behind me because I don't chord so good. So, you know, when you've got a guitarist that can do chords and lead and, you know, key change, we would have people who's a guy with blood, sweat and tears. When we played in Atlanta, he would sit in with us. A guitarist? Al Cooper? Al Cooper. Yes. He would come just about every time we played a place called Finocchio's on Peachtree Street, Al Cooper would come in and sit in with us. And, uh, you know, it was just, uh, they they would trade off licks. He would start something. Bruce and Mike could jump right in. They could, you know, he, he might tell them the key. He might not. They might just see where his fingers are positioned on the neck and go from there. And of course, you know, drums, you just, you know, you just feel what's going on and jump in. Right. Now, Mike Mitch, the rhythm guitar player, he was known in your band for playing the same type of guitar that John Lennon and later on in years, Tom Petty, they both played that Rickenbacker guitar. And Mike Rich, as a rhythm guitar player, the man and Bruce Knox were, were, it it was a a, a fabulous combination. Am I on to something? The most consistent thing said about our band was we were tight. Oh, absolutely. When you you play together that long, you're into each other's head so much that if one guy makes a mistake, we all make the mistake and nobody hears it. Yeah. Uh, You know, except us. But I mean, you know, you don't really notice it out front because we're we're covering let's say we start a verse too soon or something i mean we're all right there we can we can tell what's coming and and we would just all be right there now i learned a long time ago that if you can't play very well twirl your stick well nobody (laughs) first of all i disagree with the fact that you couldn't play very well number one i appreciate number two there is nobody zero person on the face of this earth that i to this very day have ever seen that twirled their sticks as as good as you and not only that but i used to see these sticks go up to the air at reflections and this is a warehouse building yeah. this this building from the ground up I, I i i don't know 50 feet something like this some ridiculous length up before you ever hit concrete or whatever it is I, up there i think probably about 30 feet, yeah, and, I, and easily. I, would bounce, I would bounce the sticks off the ceiling every once in a That's while. That's right. I'd see them go up 30 feet, and you'd be in the middle of playing a song, and boy, here'd come down the, the same stick that hit a ceiling 30 feet up in the air, and you never missed a note. Uh, yeah, I, it's, I, I got a high percentage of non-misses. <laughs> oh, I'm telling you what. All righty. Danny's tune from Danny Eli. He was your bass player. Who wrote Danny's tune? Tell me about that. Well, Danny did. You know, we all kind of, uh, we took, uh, I think on the album, we got individual credit for whoever wrote it. But if we all, like, many times somebody would write a song at home and then they'd bring it to rehearsal and then we'd kind of tweak it. And by the time we all added our little input to it, it didn't sound like the same song, but it was still pretty good. And so we would give credit to everybody that contributed to it. So uh, every- Danny's tune from the album was written by your bass player. Danny right. Eliason. Eliason. Yeah. I spell that for the crowd. E L I A S S 
E-L-I-A-S-O-N. Eliason. Yes. There we go. All right. Ladies and gentlemen, from the album, Boot, here is Danny's tune. Written, sung by, it was sung by Danny as well. Right, Jim? Correct. All right. Here we go. There's a pain in my
Right, there we go. Now, Danny's Tune. How did that do? Were the people liking the song Danny's Tune? It it was unique to your bass player. It it was uh it, it was I don't know what to say other than the fact that it was different than anything I had heard at that time by any other band. Hey little girl seemed to be the radio catch phrase a uh, hook laden hit that right. was it but then Danny's tune was was unique and people liked that I remember you had uh, Bruce Knox he used to sing a song about a girl named Liza Liza Jane Liza Brown Liza Brown Liza the further Brown. Adventures of Liza Brown that's actually, right he didn't he didn't sing on that Mike sang yeah Mike sang I think here Mike sang that one yes and Danny sang Danny's tune yeah uh, boy it's been a while I'm trying to remember them all but you know, they came to the to the practice with the song idea, and and we we just kind of went from there. All right, so basically, Danny's tune, which we just played for the audience, that was your bass player's uh, swan song, if you will. That was how he, one of the ways he contributed to the show. Yeah, right. And he had a very soulful voice, kind of uh, sort of Janis Joplin-ish, if you want to say. Yes. Um, now, now, a little background. Danny and I were best friends in high school. So this was 10th grade that we formed this band. So when we started practicing in my garage with two other guys, Danny would just show up, you know, just, just to watch. And then, uh, so we... <laughs> were, well, who was your bass player then? We didn't have one then. We just had a guitar, <laughs> a lap steel, and drum. Oh, my. And then, uh, and then Danny started singing... And he was so bad. He was, uh, he would sing Roy Orbison's In Dreams. And you know how that song, well, all the Roy Orbison stuff is all over the chart. Yeah. But I mean, he was squeaking and squawking and I, I don't see how he stood with us and, and developed the voice that he did. But it was shortly thereafter that he got interested in, in guitar first. And then we needed a bass. So he started playing bass and he, he developed, I mean, he, he was a, a, a dedicated student of the bass. Right. Now, at the time you're a garage band and you're, yeah. you're what? You're in 10th grade in high school. 15 years old. 15 years old. Did you have at that time, I don't know this, but I'm assuming you had both a father and a mother at home or am I wrong? No, no. I, I'm the guy that, uh, uh, I never had a father. My, uh, uh, when I was about a year old, my father left uh -huh. and I, I didn't even meet him until I was 16. Oh my. Okay. So yeah. basically your mother depended upon you, if you will, is it fair to say to be the man of the house? To a certain extent, it was. My brother was uh, seven years older than me, and when I was uh, about 13, we were still living in Ohio, he joined the Navy. I didn't so know you he, lived in Ohio. Yeah, I was in Akron, Ohio. Oh, I, okay. I was born, Home I was of the Soapbox Derby. Yeah, that's right. And I actually, when I was in uh, eighth grade, I marched in the Soapbox Derby for Goodyear Junior High, but I was I was marching in the East High School band. They needed uh, they needed a drummer, and so, you know, I, I was a marching drummer. I'll be done. Now, did yeah. your mother at that time, did she have any idea or your older brother? Did your older brother in Newport, Richie, uh, was it Newport, Richie, where the garage was, where you were practicing, yes. right? Did your yes. older brother and your mother have any 
idea at that time that this garage band with these four what was to turn out to be four high school friends was gonna go on for 11 straight years without any personnel change and travel the country travel the world play with all these stars and and become professional rock and rollers or was that just something they never even thought about they didn't think it would happen to be honest none of us thought of that (laughs) we were we were just having fun we were just playing guitars and my mother was very supportive there were many times that in our (laughs) i've got a lot of garage band stories we would after supper the band would get together and we'd play for two or three hours in the garage and all the way up until 10 o'clock at night and then everybody dispersed we had neighbors that called the police on us the police would come and we always had a crowd out in front of the garage oh i believe that i believe that our friends from high school would come and it was it was a party you know they just liked hearing the band they would be outside the garage and talking and, and uh, you know, just having a good time. Well, we had neighbors that would call the police. The police would come and they'd say, look, we want, uh, and they'd tell me, they said, we actually like the fact that you're here doing this because all the bad guys in town are at your garage. <laughs> <laughs> oh, I like that. It, so it, we know it gives where them they something are. to do. Yeah. And they said, as long as you knock it off at 10 o'clock, the neighbors can't say a thing. So, you know, we were, the, the police were supporting us. Oh, and I think years, that's fabulous. Yeah. And years later, after we started playing and, and uh, uh, going around again, my, my mother was very supportive. And we would every time we were playing all over the United States, we would come back and play in our hometown at the Newport Ritchie Recreation Center. In fact, I, I asked uh, Dion Demucci to come and play with us once. So he came up from Miami and he was the star. And, and so we we played together at the, the teen center. My mother was always in the front row. And uh, and a lot of the kids, you know, knew her and, and they were. You know, you know how the 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 she's the mom of the town. Something yes, like that. yeah. Well, Carmine Apice talks about his mom basically doing that as well. Yeah, but she was so supportive. She was in the front row every time we played. And you know, trust me when I tell you this, we were the loudest band in the world. Mm-hmm. <laughs> and, mm-hmm. and she was still right there. You know, that is Pretty incredible. Cool. Now, yeah. tell me about my mother, for God's sake. I, uh, you know, I got to tell you, she went with my dad to see one of her idols that she loved and they saw him live in Las Vegas and that was one thing she had always wanted to do and this man's name was Neil Diamond. Really? Yes but Boot, I understand played with Neil Diamond. In Lakeland Civic Center, yes. In Florida? Uh-huh. You warmed him up? Yes. Well, actually, yeah, we did. We did. He was just a man and a guitar and he had just released Solitary Man. Oh, yes. Yeah, so he had no orchestra with him. No, it was just him and a guitar. What do they and call? They it. call that acoustic, uh, unplugged. That's right. It was acoustic. Of course, it was it was Mike, but um, you know that's and we were, you know, to be quite honest, who who knew how big a star he would become? But we were kind of kind of laughing at him to it by well under our breath as we watched him play because the way he moved when he used his guitar, we said he plays that like a girl. <laughs> uh, oh my! Oh my! Yeah. Now. When you heard Skinner out of yeah. Jacksonville yeah. with, I'm assuming Ronnie Van Zant was still alive. Oh, it was the original band. Right? It was the had, original band. Yes. They were still just a regional, uh, 
regional act. Had they, they broken they out? Had they broken out of Jacksonville, Florida yet, or no? Well, they were playing in Atlanta with us, but uh, they had not released a record that went national yet. Ah, there you go, boy. That's be, early Skinnerd. Now that's early, yeah. early Skinnerd. Right. And to be quite honest, I'd, I'd heard that they were real good because I'd heard about them in Florida, but we'd never seen them. So when we saw them, to be quite honest, I was a little disappointed. I don't know why, but, you know, I just uh, they didn't do any of, the, any of the songs that made them famous because they I don't think they'd they probably them hadn't written them yet. Right. Right. So uh, anyway, I, I was less than impressed. But, you know, that, that's the critical musician in me. Well, yes. Plus, when you're when you're playing with these unknown acts, you don't look <laughs> at them the same way as when that same act has hit after hit after hit and you know right. all those songs right right did and you and accurate. that was my question that's why i'm bringing it up did you have any idea jimmy that that skinnerd would go on to do Freebird and and all the sweet home alabama and everything no. that would make them what they are not a clue. Uh, Did like, you yeah, know was, the late, we just lost Gary Rossington, their guitar, yeah. the last original member. Uh, the did you know him? together again. Yeah. Did you know Gary Rossington? I didn't. Uh, I, I didn't know any of the guys individually. Now, we, we stayed at the same Ho- uh, motel in uh, in Georgia, just outside of Atlanta. Uh, it was a day's in. They were partying on the other end of the hotel, and and I was in. I, I wasn't a partier. Now my guys went. They would go and do it, but I was the only rocker from back that in that time that didn't drink, didn't smoke, didn't do drugs. Mm. Uh, so I, but I may have set some records with women. But besides that, <laughs> uh-huh. uh, <laughs> yeah. Now now, all right. Tell me when the band boot. What year was it that that you broke up? Uh, 1975. All right. 1975. You started in 1963. Yeah. When did you meet a woman that you referred to as, and I quote, the best wife I've ever had? (laughs) What year was it? Was it nine? It wouldn't happen to be 1975, would it? No, it was 1979. Oh, it was after all this. Yes. I, I had a wife in Florida. We were married for seven years. We we got married in 73. Oh, you mean you were married before? Yes. Oh, I yeah. didn't know that. I didn't know that. Yeah, you were married when, when the band was on the road? Right. I never right. saw her. Where did she come out with you or no? No, she was a manager of a ladies' health spa in Tampa called Louisa Health, uh, Louisa International Health Resort oh. or Health Spa. And uh, so the, the continuing saga here is we got along fine as long as I was on the road. But when I came home, we didn't get along that well. And when we then Louisa asked us to move with her up to Louisiana and start another health spa. Well, the band had already broken up. That was in 1976. And I thought, sure, you know, I'll, I'll just use Shreveport as a jump off place to go to Nashville and I'll just do some studio work. So I came up here. I, I was in, involved in pre-sales for this ladies health spa. And, uh, and I, Louisa was the Coca-Cola heiress. Her grandfather was the first man to bottle Coca-Cola. And so that was that was my brush with greatness. And uh, so I, 
I would hang out at the Coca-Cola company and talk to the accountants and stuff like that. I got interested in accounting. So I went back to school, got my accounting degree, and I became Luisa's uh, company pilot since I already knew how to fly and corporate secretary. Be was, oh, and you 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 flew a, what, a corporate plane? Well, just, you know, single engine, just whenever she wanted to fly somewhere, you know, sort of close, like Dallas or Lake Charles, Florida. Was this or, a jet or a propeller? Just propeller, single engine right. propeller. Yeah, I was just a private pilot, but uh, but it was fun. I got I, I I used to fly canceled checks in Florida, and I was in Civil Air Patrol for a long time in Shreveport. A- and then it's none of my business. But what about all that caused you to say, you know, I better move forward and get on with my life in a different direction? Yeah. If you don't want to tell me, don't tell me. It's none I, of no, my no, business. No, I'm entirely open. In fact, if my current wife of forty three years was here, I'd say the same thing. We were working together and living together. And it was one of those things where, you know, you get home and, uh, you know, how was your day? Well, you know, you were there. Uh, (laughs) Yes. Yes. Yeah. So uh, it was just, we just kind of grew apart. Luckily, we didn't have any children. So after seven years of marriage, we just agreed to separate and and get a divorce. So I I did the divorce myself. It cost me $29.50. Wow. You amicably separated without the usual BS that a lot of couples go through. Well, it helped that we didn't have children. Then, right. then uh, I met uh, about a year later, I met uh, my current wife. We, I was playing in a band at the NCO club at Barksdale Air Force Base. She came over to me. I'm studying accounting. Was now, she a soldier? No, no. She just, a couple of her girlfriends said, you got to come and see this band. You got to come and see this drummer, you know, that, that kind of thing. So they they came into the uh, NCO, that's Non-Commissioned Officers Club. And uh, so they were watching the band and I'm, Every, every break, I'm, I'm trying to study accounting. So I'm finding any place with light that I could study. And she comes over. Of course, I, I embellish the story just a little bit where she comes over and she says, hi, what's your name? Jim O'Brock. And then she, she said, you sure are good on those drums. I said, well, thank you very much. Now, if you don't mind, I've got to study. Oh, no. <laughs> no, you didn't. But then she she confided in me later that after, you know, when I told her my name, she thought, why is he telling me his middle initial? I don't need his middle initial. Uh-huh. <laughs> Your Obrock. Right. Yeah. Now yeah. she doesn't know much about Irishmen, does she? No. Well, I'm actually I'm Polish. Oh, really? The With name a name like be... Obrock? Yep. It, when my grandfather came over from Poland in 1906, it was Obrock. O b r o k. Um, the story is he put a C in it so it wouldn't sound hunky. And then my father put an apostrophe and capital B and gave me a middle name of Patrick before he left. So I'm James Patrick O'Brock and I'm Polish. Wow. All right. <laughs> now we're over time, Jim, by eight minutes. Okay. But before I let you go, what I want to ask is the band is on fire. You're playing with major names in rock and roll. You right. don't need me to tell you that. You were living the life. People were loving it. People are writing up on YouTube to this very day saying, I remember them here. I remember my relatives told me about them here. I've one guy said Jim O'Brock would play the drums with a microphone and with his hands, just like, um, uh, 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 somebody else was doing that. Um, I know that, uh, uh, when I saw Tommy Aldridge with, uh, Black Oak, Arkansas, with his double bass drum work he did very very well and would yeah. play the drums with no but with his hands with no sticks and yeah. and acts like this and people say Jimmy 
Obrock played the drums with a microphone. And I remember you wrote the Shure Microphone Company and you said, listen, I need a microphone that is capable of doing something that a microphone is not normally used for. <laughs> it is going to take some abuse. And what is it that you told the mic company that you wanted to do with that microphone? Well, I want to hit the drums and the cymbals. <laughs> you wanted to use a sure microphone of the company's making that was so well built that when you hit the snare drum with it, it would come boing, boing, and the sound well, man could make these noises and make these effects because you were hitting drums and cymbals with a mic in your hand. I actually created that on stage. The sound man, now, when we played uh, Reflections, uh, I he had control of my echoplex that I played through. Yes. But typically, I would have the echoplex on stage with me with a foot switch. And so uh, I would be start playing with the microphone and then I'd hit the echoplex and and then you'd get the echo and, and you know slap back and stuff. Right. And now this echoplex, if, if you want me to describe it for the normal person out there that may not know, I would call that a glorified eight-track tape cartridge player. Would that be Absolutely. fair? It's an endless tape with several heads on it and you can move the heads to different spacing to get the the uh, the slap back the the playback uh, either further away or closer to what you were what you were playing absolutely and now today you don't need that nonsense it's, it's all electronic. digital it's all electronic it's digital yeah. you can dial it in numerically and get whatever it is you want digitally they did right. not have that back then yeah this was a physical an actual tape right that, you that said your guitarist Bruce Knox was ahead of his time yes. I've told you this before Jim O'Brock I'm uh, yes. I've told it to you privately and now I'm going to tell it to you publicly what Bruce Knox and Mike Mitch had as a guitar and a bass player I equate to be and I know what I'm talking about I it's not my first rodeo yeah what Van Halen offered the public was being done by boot before Van Halen was probably ever even formed if, if you could compare yeah that would that would be a pretty close comparison exactly this yeah. is what i'm telling when you know what it is you're doing when you're good at what you do when you're a showman when you're ahead of your time when you have talent you have four guys named boot who all these years later people are still talking about you and jimmy i don't know how you can get any better than that other than find a replacement for bruce knox and put the band back together which i know your wife probably throw you out of the house if you did it <laughs> so i'm not expecting Actually, you to do it but she supports me with my playing too she knows that i can't get it out of my system and so you know i i still play in bands right and, uh, you and play I'll, you play at church yeah and i'll be going out friday night to uh, uh to play with a band i'm just going to sit in with them but they have already asked me to be their drummer they want they want to fire their drummer oh my. so uh, anyway uh, and i don't want to really be the impetus 
for someone replacing someone, but if they're already upset with them and have that in, in motion, then, you know, hey, call me. I'll right. Oh, my. Oh, my. Ladies and gentlemen, you have been listening to the leader as well as the drummer of a band that will go down in garage band history from Newport, Ritchie, Florida. The band was known as Boot. And this is the rock star drummer, Jim O'Brock, who, along with Mike Mitch on the Rickenbacker rhythm guitar, Danny Eliason on the bass. What did he play on the bass? He uh, played a Rick Rickenbacker. Uh, oh, he yeah. played Rickenbacker too? Yeah. Oh my, oh my. Okay. And then the late Bruce Knox who played a Les Paul, probably that black Les Paul. I'm going right. to guess looked to me like a recorder or you, you know, don't, I don't know. know the specific model. I know he bought it brand new. He might have spent $800 for it. That guitar is probably worth, you know, 10,000 or 15,000 now. Yeah, it was a, a Gibson Les Paul. Right. And not only that, but before we get out of here, wouldn't he use the the the, the bottle on his fingers and do oh, that yeah. slide? Oh, he was good on that. Yes. Yeah, very good. He knew it all. He knew it all. And yeah. then there's Jimmy O'Brock bouncing <laughs> sticks off of a uh, off of a ceiling at a club that was 30 feet above his head and the sticks would hit the roof come bouncing down and you'd catch him and the song would go on without having missed a beat. I'd catch him 99% of the time. That's correct. <laughs> that is correct. Oh my goodness gracious. Jim. I am, Rick, I am really flattered by you. Thank you so much. It's nice to give an old man recognition like this. I'm telling you what, uh, get down with your bad self, Jim O'Brock. Yeah because you deserve it. I was there. I saw it. My career was coming up as a young man. I started, you know, playing just like you. The first band I had, we had made $20 and yeah. we had to split it four ways. Yeah. And, and I, I'm telling you what, I took out my $5 and I said, well, I hope to God it's not, <laughs> this is not <laughs> indicative of what's to wait, but I will just say I had a blast with it. But one of the things that shocked me in the business was when I was a young 18, 19, 20 year old kid coming to hear boot and my lower jaw dropped when I heard this band that, like you said, that band was tight. Yep. Yep. Absolutely. What do you want to say to the people, Jim, before we get out of here? Well, I just, you know, again, I just want to emphasize uh, how flattered. I am that that so many people remember me now. I, even now, I get people get in a nostalgia mood and they start thinking about their youth and they think, "Oh, I wonder where that band is." And they'll get on Facebook and they'll find me, and you know, I don't know who they are really, but they'll they'll say, "Oh, you were just such a great part of my youth," and uh, la la la. Anyway, I, I'm just flattered that uh, people still remember after all this time. Right, and you know what? You had groupies back then, but the only problem is, is if you were to ask those groupies to bite you on the neck today they'd have to look at you and say excuse me jim i gotta go get my teeth <laughs> well and that's one more little aside here with my with my present wife of 43 years i tell people we've been married 15 happy years out of 43 but uh <laughs> 
Oh, <laughs> no, my. She's still the best wife I ever had. But I, when the internet was kind of brand new and I got an uh, email address and all that, there were some of those people that would find me and contact me. And my wife would see that I was writing someone. She'd say, who's that? And I said, well, she was one of one of my groupies back in you know the 60s. She's, my wife would say, I'm not sure I like that. And I said, look, she's 65. <laughs> right. Oh, yes. Yeah. Oh, and she probably is happily married for all those years. Grown. Absolutely. She's a grandma. Yep. Oh, right. for heaven's sakes. Get <laughs> down with your bad self. Jim oh, yeah. O'Brock. Ladies and gentlemen, thank you for joining us today. This is how Rick Flynn presents Confessions of a Showbiz Kid Got Started because I didn't know what in the hell a podcast was. They had to teach me. I knew radio. I knew TV. I knew how to speak. I knew how to write a syndicated column about music. It was called Rick Flynn's Music Scene, for heaven's sake. I knew it, but I did not know what a podcast was, but I did know that if I called up Jimmy O'Brock and said, (laughs) let's talk about boot and getting a rock and roll band together that was absolutely able to do something in life that you would not let me down and you didn't let me down. Thank you, Jimmy. Thank you, Rick. I'm flattered. Thank you. I hope everything goes well. And, and uh, you know, what are you up to? About 200 of these, did you say? We're uh, we're going to be there soon. We're at a hundred and um, almost 140. Oh, good for you, man. Good luck to you. And I want to thank the drummer for the Electric Light Orchestra Bev Bevan. He came on and was the uh, guest of honor for our 100th celebration show from the Electric Light Orchestra. I want to give a shout out to him. You certainly know and have heard that man. Another Slingerland drummer for you there, Jim. Wow, boy, that's a long time ago. Ladies and gentlemen, what a good show. I've loved every second of it. This is Rick Flynn. It's been fun, but I've got to run on behalf of myself and the rock star drummer from Boot Newport, Ritchie, Florida. It's Mr. Jim O'Brock. We'll see you next Wednesday with another show. Thank you all and good night. God bless Rick. Thank you, Rick. I appreciate it, man. Do you, are you are you using notes? No, hell no. Well, neither am I. So yeah, good, no, good uh-uh. stuff. No, it's all off the top of my head. Uh-uh. Man, that's great, Rick. The preceding was a Rick Flynn production. This is your announcer, Chantal Marie speaking.